Well, if you would please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that would be on page 3. Wonderfully convenient as we preach through Genesis. We're going to be focusing on Genesis 3, and we're going to be taking a look at the first six verses today as we explore the foundations of the Christian life. As we are noted here in our study of Genesis, we are looking at the introduction to everything, and that includes even the doctrine of sin. And it's important, unpleasant though it may be, for us to take a hard look at sin, where it comes from, what it looks like, and how we continue to do it even today. So listen carefully, because this is God's word for you. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to him in prayer as we dive into this together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that we have. Though it is, in every sense of the word, a damning indictment on humanity. I ask that as we look at it, that we would be reminded of your grace. That we'd be able to look honestly at what it is that has caused such offense. And may we be driven in our hearts away from it and to you. Lord, help me to examine this passage faithfully, preach it clearly, and help us to believe it and to live it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we are discussing the very sad topic of sin. This is not pleasant as we think about it and can perhaps remind us of many ways in which we have been sinned against, bringing about pangs of bitterness, or it can be a regret-filled reminder of how we have lived our lives. Now, this, in an American context, doesn't sound like what you come to church for. It's like, I thought we were here so that we could be built up, so we could be encouraged and to live the life that we are supposed to live. Why do you have to be so negative when talking about this thing? Well, unfortunately, 
We cannot understand how anything works in our world if we do not understand sin. We will not understand why government and the particular expressions that we have of it work or don't work. Theories of economics rely on a proper understanding of sin and its effects on us. Parenting, the way that we try to live a moral life, everything is dependent on us understanding this or not. Sin has been neutered in our culture. We have pretty much worked sin down to be really only something that is diet-related. We have sinned by taking an extra donut and feel guilty about it. I, not having a wife to keep me in line, have been violating this a lot. Trader Joe's does have a fantastic sourdough donut, just going to tell you. But we in our culture feel more guilty about blowing through a whole box of donuts and maybe half of a Reese's peanut butter cup box than we do about the selfishness that this demonstrates from us. We think about what this has done to our bodies, but we don't think about the inner motivations that have caused us to do those things. Sin has been greatly reduced. And because of our reduced emphasis on this, And our negligence to confront it for what it is, we set ourselves up for failure again and again. We don't put proper safeguards because we don't really believe that sin is a problem. The reason why we have the church government the way that we do here in the Presbyterian church is because we have a grasp of sin. We don't put all of our power in one man because if we did, we'd recognize that sin is going to corrupt me. I'm just as sinful as you are. And putting a sinful person in charge of everybody is a bad idea. But by spreading these things out, we can reduce the impact that sin has in our proceedings. This is important. But even more important than understanding how the world works is recognizing that sin is our enemy. And if you are going to fight your enemy properly, you need to know what it is. And by that, I do not mean that we need to dive into our culture and take a close look at each and every one of the sins that we do and dive into the cesspool of evil that surrounds us. Because that's not going to tell you what it really is anyway. Sin is not going to expose itself to you. Sin is not going to call itself evil. That's why it works. Instead, if we're going to understand sin, we have to understand the divine perspective on it. And that's what we find here in this passage in Genesis chapter 3. So, as we jump into our outline for today, I want us to see two points. I've called this the roadmap of sin. As this Genesis chapter 3 provides us for here is how sin takes you to itself. The first, first point is that sin lies about God. The fundamental part of where sin gets its success from is sin lies about God. And then the second point that we're going to look at is that God's goodness promises more than sin can. That's how we can defeat it. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3. There are a lot of places that we can go into the Bible to get a thorough analysis of what sin is. But I think the best place to start 
is where it starts in Genesis chapter 3. Now, you're going to notice that the Bible does not answer the questions often that we bring to it in our modern mind. We would like to know where this came from, don't we? We're big on origin stories because we think that by knowing where the origin of something comes from, that we would best know how to defeat it. The Bible doesn't give us that answer. It just says, here's a serpent, and he's evil, and he's going to bring humanity to be evil with him. Where does serpent come from? Well, Revelation calls it the devil. So we assume that the, the devil has somehow taken possession of this snake to speak through it. But where does the devil come from? The Bible doesn't say. It says he's a creature. As we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that God created. So we at the very least know this is not some rival deity, someone who offers a legitimate challenge to God. He's just another created being. But why this created being is evil? The Bible does not tell us. And I'm not sure if it did tell us that would make much of a difference. I'm much more interested in the solution to our sin problem. And that is the question that the Bible answers for us. So let's take a look with this serpent and see how he gets started. So, the conversation continues here in verse 1. He's speaking to the woman, but the verbs that he's using, as scholars will point out, are plural. So he's talking to both Adam and Eve here. And as you probably noticed at the end of our passage in verse 6, that Adam has been here the whole time. So this is not just a, well... Eve was tricked, and if only Adam had been there, everything would be different. We don't get to take that line of reasoning. Everybody is equally responsible here. So as we get in, we notice the serpent's challenge. And at the start of things, this seems like a kind of clumsy way to begin. Here, the serpent is being very much of an exaggerator. He begins and says, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, that's just flatly wrong. Adam and Eve know that. They've been eating from all these trees for a long time. Why does he begin in such this clumsy way? Couldn't he be a little bit more subtle than that? Well, I think he is being more subtle than that. By answering and asking this question in this particular way, the answer for this question would be, no, he's just told us not to eat that one which would be how we would think Eve might respond. And this is clever, because what we're getting to do here is he is getting Eve to immediately focus on the negative. Here's your prohibition. You're not supposed to eat from that tree. But I think the way that he's asking the question, if I in my own sinfulness can try to get into the mind of the devil, which is easier than you might think, But if I was to try to do that, my thought for this would be to say, get her to focus on the prohibition so she's not focusing on the goodness. Get her to think about the restriction so we don't think about blessings. Ignore all the rest of this. And in fact, I'm going to phrase it this way. If you can't eat of this tree, he might as well tell you not to eat from anything. He's denying you this. So all the rest of this good stuff doesn't matter. He's denying you. And focus on this. God is stingy. 
is what he wants you to come away with. And I think that's the first step. I see, at least in this passage, I see five moves that Satan is taking people from. And I think it's going to be something that we're going to see as we go along and perhaps even read our own experiences with sin as we go here. So he's getting them to doubt what God is saying. So Eve responds to this charge. And in verse 2, he says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you've heard this passage preached at all, we'll zero in on what Eve says about the not touching part. And we'll make calls to the Pharisees and say, Ah, look at Eve, the first legalist. She's adding on to the qualities that God had said. See what happens when you try to add additional commands? Throw things off. Poor Eve, the first Pharisee. And that's not wrong. She is adding to God's commands. There is a lack of precision in the way that she's answering this question. But I actually think the focus might be a little bit more subtle than that. The way that she's repeating, the way this command was originally given to, from, from God to Adam way back in chapter 2. Well, it says, you may surely eat of every other tree in the garden. This was the point when I said God was Italian. Because to translate it literally from Hebrew says, eat, eat of the fruit. This is God being generous. Got the big spoon going into the lasagna. Lopping it onto the plate. You can take from every other tree that's here and eat it to your heart's content. I'm asking you not to have this one. This is going to be how you're going to demonstrate trust and love to me. I'm just going to set one thing. It's not good for you. You're not ready for this. You can't take that. But everything else is yours. What she just has is you may eat doesn't have the surely, doesn't have to eat, eat. Already, the blessings of God are beginning to be reduced in her mind. And instead, now we're just like, you know, we weren't supposed to eat it. He even told us not to touch it. See the subtle shift in mindset here? We're focusing on what we shouldn't do and forget all the blessings that are behind This is oftentimes, and I don't remember who, where I first heard of this, but I heard one preacher talking about the way that we often try to fight sin is often incorrect. When we come up to a temptation, instead of focusing on the prohibition about, oh, Jesus said, no, I shouldn't do this, this is wrong, this is bad, what we're doing is we're still continuing to focus on this sin over and over and over. Instead, when we feel the temptation to sin... The reaction should be to remind ourselves of all the goodness that God has provided for us. Now the focus is off the sin. Now our minds are being occupied with the blessings of God. And on the goodness of God. And now all of a sudden, instead of being motivated by duty, I know he said no, we're now motivated by love. How could I sin against someone who has done all this? See the mindset change here? But this is how we try to do that. 
This also points to the importance of doctrinal precision. You know, there are, and some of the, some of the reputation is justly deserved. But when we go to seminary, you see all of these nerds arguing about particular words. You'll hear people talk about the difference between is Jesus of two natures or in two natures. And you think to yourself, why does that matter? It's a preposition. Get your PhD somewhere else. But those things do matter. One of those things is, in fact, heresy. It's the of, by the way. In two natures, people. But this precision is important. Because as you see here, where God's command got its power from was a reminder of the blessing. That was his emphasis. And his emphases should be ours. The things that he has given for us to be precise about, we need to be precise about. Because those things, those little inaccuracies take us really far away. If you've ever had the displeasure of having to hang crown molding in your house. One degree off in this corner puts you like 15 feet off by the time you get to this next one. Don't ask me how I know that. But little imprecisions over here, think, ah, it's a preposition, doesn't matter, leads to big problems over here. If Jesus is of two natures, that means you've got some mixing going on and he's not fully human and not fully divine. He's some third other thing. And that leads you to all sorts of problems as we've seen throughout church history. And the same thing even comes down to how we live our own personal lives. When we forget that God has blessed us and how much he's blessed us, our thinking goes off the rails. And we're going to see just how Satan accomplishes that. Let's keep going. So verse 1, we get the subtle implication, God is stingy. Why would he keep this from you? And he goes on. Move number 2. Verse 4. Lie number 2, God is a liar. Listen. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That is a flat contradiction to what God has said. God clearly said, and Eve clearly reiterated, she did get that right, that there would be death for violating this promise. And instead of Satan just simply trying to reword it, just says, nope, God's lying to you. And you think to yourself, why? Why would God lie to us? Let's move. Step number three. says, for God knows... That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. This is moves three and four. The reason why God is a liar is he's insecure. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll have good and evil. You'll be a rival to who he is. He doesn't want that. So he's going to try to Put a smoke screen around all that. Hide his own insecurity behind a requirement that's not even true. You know what that tells you? Move number four. God's just like you. He just knows a little bit more than you do. All you need is a knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be just like him. See this move? God's stingy. He's a liar. 
He's insecure because you're closer to him than you think. All these steps. And then the final one. If you'll take this fruit, then you will be like God. The human potential. You can get to run your own show. Your human potential is far above what you think it is and what God's told you it is. And I'm here to tell you all about it. Now, what's really insidious about this is that at the very least, point number four, you'll be more like God, is half true. Because God himself confirms that. We'll skip ahead here in chapter three. Look at verse 22. Lord God speaking. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. God confirms that Adam and Eve have gained a little bit more knowledge and have become a little bit more like him. But the cruelest irony in all of that is while they have become like him in this one tiny respect, they have become more unlike him in their sin. By becoming sinful people, they have now separated themselves from God. And have become as unlike him as they've ever been. By taking this on. What a cruel joke. As my old seminary professor said, isn't it ironic that Adam and Eve thought that they could become more like God by following one of the creatures that they were supposed to rule? Strange trajectory to superiority through an inferior but isn't this just how our temptations work? Now, we're really practiced at sin, so we don't have to think through all the steps. You know, it's kind of like when you are going to go drive somewhere. You don't think, okay, key in the ignition, turn, all right, grab steer. You don't think about all that. That's just in the background processes of your brain. You've been sinning a lot longer than you've been driving. So all this is very much background processes now. But if we could slow down time and give you the chance to think through each step when you're sinning, can you not see each of these same things? I want what God told me I can't have. Now, it's bad for me if I take that, but I want it. And if I want it, it probably means there's something good for me over here. I know he said no, but there's something good for me over here. And I think that by God denying it to me, he's being stingy with me. I'm so upset that I can't have this thing. All the other blessings to me are worthless because I don't have this. I'm willing to disobey God to get this thing because that's what I want. And you know what? By him denying this to me, he's stingy. This is a good thing. I should have it. He's probably just insecure. If God is being stingy, or if God has told me no on this, but I still think it's a good thing, then I'm saying that he's lying. God didn't really say that. I can see a little bit better. I've actually consulted with other people and have determined that their opinion matters more than God does. In fact, that's what one apologist points out that Eve is doing here. Eve wants to eat from, from that fruit, and she gathers some opinions. She's heard from God. Now let's hear from this snake. Let's see what he thinks gathered some opinions and we've concluded the weight of the evidence is not with God's word 
It's with my desires and this person's thinking. So God must be wrong. And if God is wrong, then that means that I can see things more clearly than he can. I'm the one with the boots on the ground. I can see what's really happening here and I'm going to move forward with it. And since I'm going to move forward with it, I'm going to be the one to determine my own destiny. I'm going to be God. Now, is our thinking that sophisticated each time we sin? No. Most of the time it goes, I want that. And take it. But if we were to slow down and examine all these processes, some form of that is either explicitly or implicit in your thinking. Even if you would never say out loud, God is a liar, by us doing something that we know he said was wrong and would bring us harm, we tell him he's not right. Whether we intend to do so or not. That's what Genesis 3 is telling us. It's implicit. It's sophisticated. Maybe it's unconscious. But that's what we do. So now let's take a look here. God, Satan has worked through all these moves with Eve. And now we're at a decision point in verse 6. And this is something, excuse me, that my good friend, well, through, through a book, I don't know him personally, but I feel like I know him now, Mr. Watkins, who points out something very interesting in Genesis 3. I didn't notice this before. See what you all think. When we are looking at the term knowing good and evil, the Hebrew word can also mean choosing good and evil. Because believe it or not, Adam and Eve actually do know what's good and what's not. They've been told from God, it is bad for you to eat of that tree, and it is good that you eat of all these other trees. They actually know good and evil exists. What's happening here is they're getting the chance to take out and choosing for themselves. See if you notice an echo from Genesis chapter 1. And again, this insight comes from Mr. Watkins. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, have you heard that about six times before? God saw that it was good. And this is not God holding up a grade sheet and saying, all right, I've got light. How is this lining up with my assignment? He doesn't do that. He's God. He decides what's good and what's evil. I see it. I say it's good. Therefore, it is. And now Eve is saying, I'm seeing it and I say it's good. Whether God says it's good or not. That's the moment what's happening here. And she takes the fruit and she eats. Saying, we are the lords of this world and we are going to decide what's good. That's what Adam and Eve are grasping at here. Trying to bring God down in his transcendence from God to colleague. Someone we can have a respectful dialogue with, but in the end we can agree to disagree. That's what Eve is doing here in this moment. 
and what we all do every time we sin. That's the roadmap. Despite being placed in literal paradise, as my professor once said, despite being placed in a world that is called good by God himself, Adam and Eve thought that they could imagine better. Do we not do the same? Have you ever had the opportunity, if you can call it that, of being at a child's birthday party for whom the child is very entitled and spoiled? And that no matter how many packages he opens at the end of the party, and the end always comes, the question is asked, is that all? Surrounded by friends, family, and new toys, the toddler asks, is that all? And our first thought is, oh, with a mixture of disgust and sympathy, we see this child locked in this discontentment. Because our disgust is tempered a little bit by recognizing while we don't, while we have been told societally, you don't ask that question. We think it, don't we? Is that it? God gave me this life. Is that it? I thought there'd be a little more than this. Every sin that we commit is the raging toddler inside our own heart that says, I don't have enough. I want more. I know better than you. This is sin. Can you now see why sin is so offensive to God? Do you see how many untrue things have to be said about God? You wouldn't like that said about you. That's what our kids do when they sin against us, isn't it? I know better than you, Mom. I can run in the street if I want to. And we're like, I've done so many good things for you. You're just so focused on what I told you not to. And it's for your own good. Hear the echoes in our own mind. And you can also see how damaging this sin goes over time. Any one sin, typically, doesn't do a whole lot of damage. And it's designed to be that way. Sin doesn't want to come out to you and say, Hi, I'm poisonous to your entire life. It wants to get you to do just a little bit at a time. Thinking that you could deserve a little bit better than your spouse currently is. Having that one fleeting thought and immediately repenting of it is probably not going to do a whole lot of damage. But if you continue to have that thought for 20 years, 80,000 times, what sort of damage is that going to do to your relationship? Now imagine this in any other field. I'm supposed to be content. But that little thought says, but I, I really want this. Fought over and over again, the damage is so small, you hardly notice it. Speaking to a termite guy, for reasons I won't go into, about the damage that they can do to wood. 
Do you know termites only eat five grams of wood a day? It's not much. You could hold five grams of wood in the palm of your hand. Even a few weeks of grams worth of wood is not going to be noticed. But several years worth of daily five grams of wood, that'll bring a house down. It's the same for our sin. And what's unlike termites, what's worse with sin is it gets exponentially worse the longer you have it. Once you've thought and accepted one time that you can agree to disagree with the transcendent God of the universe, do that once, it's a little bit easier to do it again. And it's a little bit easier to do it again. And it's a little bit easier to do it now the first time with a new thing. And it just grows and grows and grows and grows. That's the cancer of sin. And as we'll see unfolding through the rest of Genesis, we'll see that sin get exponentially worse. To the point where God just has to wipe out humanity and try again, it seems. We'll get to what's going on there when we get there. So now, so far, all of this has been quite depressing. And we're Presbyterian, so that's part of our ethos. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. And we do that because we want you to see point number two. That God is better than you can imagine. And that's where we get to our second point. So, how do we fight this cancer of sin that's going to eat us bit by bit away? We have to focus on Jesus and where he's come in. What he is offering to us. And the promises that God makes that he can actually fulfill. Sin makes a ton of promises to you, none of which they can actually fulfill. If you'll just do this, if you will just ignore your family and ignore Sunday to work a bit more, to save up for retirement, it will be worth it. And they all say no. You will finally have the joy you're looking for if you will just purchase this thing. And it lasts for 10 seconds. And it's gone. That's sin. What Jesus offers you is actually real. When he offers you joy, he's serious. When he offers you peace, he's serious. He's true. If we'll trust him. So much of the time, we'll give Jesus like a week. Because we're used to that fast pace that sin will give us. It's a really quick hit, but it doesn't last long. Instead, we need to come and look at what Jesus has done in order to set us free. Now, here's one more really cool thing. To note, again, the importance of studying the little words of Scripture. This is another theologian that pointed this out. What does Eve do when she sees the fruit? She does what? She takes and she eats. And 3,000 years later, Jesus offers forgiveness and says, here's my body, here's my blood, take and eat. Taste and see that I am good. The fruit of the knowledge of 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, promises goodness and left them with evil. Sure, you know good and evil. Now you know all of what evil is. And it's horrifying. And here what Jesus offers you is says, Take and eat of me. I will give you myself. Do you see how the stakes that Jesus raises here? It was fruit earlier. Now it's himself that he offers. I will give myself to you if you will take and eat. If you will put your trust in me, you will find that I am the bread of life, that I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world. I will give you rest. This is what he offers to you. To you. Today. That's the antidote of sin, people. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not psychological tricks. It's not a good diet. It's about coming to Jesus and having him transform you. So if you're here today and you say, I don't think I've ever done that. Well, you've got no shot against sin. Sin's way more powerful than you are. Because you're prone to it. You're bent towards it. Your heart deeply desires it. And it's all around you. Got no shot. It's if Jesus changes your heart, gives you new desires. That's what takes that away. But now you may say, well, pastor, I've done that. I've come to Jesus. But I'm still struggling a lot with sin. If I'm really honest, sin is still offering me a pretty good time. And I'm having a hard time getting away from this. Well, one, that's part of the Christian life. This is not a magic pill where sin goes away. This is the start of a wrestling match. But Jesus is in your corner. Jesus is empowering you. But rest on him. It might be the reason why the tastes of Christ aren't as precious to you is it's been a while since you've had a good meal. Ever notice how when you've gotten away from eating good foods and then you come back to that, how unbelievable vegetables are when your body has been malnourished from them? I remember when I was, right before we were married, I was living by myself in Bruton, which was not a great thing for my food. And I came to a Wednesday night and I was just raving about these green beans. And the pastor looked at me and he says, these are out of a can. What is wrong with you? When was the last time you've had a vegetable, son? And when I returned to it, I was amazed. Because my body was craving that. It needed some nutrients. Your soul craves this. Whether you feel it at the moment or not. And no matter how many things you try to throw down into your soul to satisfy those deep hungers, it won't last. Because that's what sin is. It's trying to fill something that you know down there is wrong. You're not just consuming pornography because you want a hit of hormone. There's something else down there. You're not sharing gossip because you're just really wanting to trash somebody else's reputation. You're searching for a community. 
You're searching for Christ. And you can't work off of bread that was made three weeks ago. If you say, oh, well, I was getting into God's word and I was praying and it's just, it's going to sustain me now for the rest of my life. No, it's every day you come back to this. Jesus was praying all the time. He's perfect. He needs prayer. So do you. We need to keep coming back to these things and to stop minimizing that. It's easy in our culture for us to look at what we do here or what we do with this as a part of our lives and not our lives itself. It's something that we do on the weekends, something we do when we feel like it. It's not. This is what gives us the motivation. This is what helps us to see that he is good. You've got to keep eating. So if you're in sin today, if you're struggling with something, first of all, I really hope that it is a struggle you're fighting. If you're fighting, that's good. Keep it up. But if it just feels like it's a constant losing battle, may I point you to the bread. Keep eating. Keep going. And I promise you, it is good. I promise you, you'll find the words of life if you will but take and eat. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for what you have provided for us on the cross. The penalty of death that we all deserve, you have taken on yourself. So help us to see it. Help us to see sin for the liar that it is. Help us to have a holy distrust of our own sinful inclinations. To compare all of our desires against what you've given to us. Help us to remember your blessings in those times of sin. And then when we do sin, because we do, that we would reach out to you again for new grace. That we would come back to you reminded of how good you are. Reminded of what you've promised us. And then help us return to you with joy. To leave our sin behind. And to look forward to that day when the presence of sin is gone forever. Let us keep this perspective and long for the day when we'll be reunited again. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.